Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Arts and Minds podcast. This is officially the first episode, a redo of the episode with Eamon Cowan that kind of got a little bit messed up by technical difficulties. This time it's been vastly improved as I called him over a cellular phone, so you're still going to get a little bit of static and stuff, which is unfortunate. But with the current times, there's not much else we can do until we can actually meet the man in person and talk a little bit more about him, which is in the the soon hopefully sooner rather than later but it is something we will do um i had a great chat with Eamon and we talked about the graphic novels he's done we talked about a couple of different irish history things that he's done he's done a, a movie about cromwell along with his book about cromwell some of the music he's wrote he's wrote actually quite a bit of music um and he wrote a tune for christy moore as well which was was very interesting to about and he goes into a little bit of the background of all of that and I feel like even with what I got I got over an hour of stuff I still have more to talk about with this guy so I will get back to him again we are going to move on to our next guest soon enough but we will touch back base with him again uh, we talked about last thing we got super nerdy with comic books we got really nerdy with comic books we also got into the process of painting uh, we got into the par- process of how he does his own art where he's like formatting a graphic novel and how we got into that industry and stuff along those lines. We also got into a little bit of politics with him, just the state of the world, you know. We got real deep. We got a deep dive. You probably know the word deep dive if you're working the corporate world because you hear it about 10 times a day and it's really annoying, so I'm never going to say that again. But yeah, we had a great time with Eamon and definitely, definitely going to have him back again. And my next guest, makeup artist. I bet you didn't think that was coming makeup artist of all things and we're going to talk to her a little bit about you know what what makes a makeup artist is it more corporate or is there artistry in there we're going to figure all that out and what the process goes along behind that because when you think about it there is an element of of brevity in makeup artistry especially on catwalk stuff when you gotta do stuff really quickly and how much of your own input is in there and how much of it's just product placement. There's a lot of stuff we got to talk about. And I'm fairly new to the topic. I only know a very small amount, but something I found fascinating for a long time. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as the newest form of, of art, even though it's probably a lot, a lot older than we even really think about. And we're going to touch on all of that with my next guest, which I'll probably post maybe during the week sometime maybe not too soon after this episode but anyway i hope everyone's keeping well thank you so much for tuning in and thank you for listening to the last podcast which i think got a mark of 16 so 16 listeners all around the world and counting which doesn't seem like like a lot but for episode zero literally the first episode for a podcast that came out of nowhere and was shared mainly on facebook wasn't shared anywhere else and to get 16 listeners across the world, that's really cool. And I'm happy with that. And that's 16 people that didn't know beforehand. And it's an even longer episode where we get to know Eamon a little bit more. And like I said, thank you so much. If you listen to this podcast, I really appreciate it. If you liked and shared it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you want. Write it on the bathroom. Write the HTTPS uh, forward slash anchor, whatever, on a bathroom stall if you like. Actually, no, don't vandalize anyone's bathroom. Um, you can listen to it on Anchor. You can listen to it on Spotify which is really cool that it's actually going through Spotify um, and you can listen to it through the link that will bring you to Anchor anyway and it's been great it's been really fun it's the only thing keeping me sane in these trying times right now and I'm currently recording this from a car and I'm going to record this introduction 
and I'm going to count it down to when we go live. But I'm actually going to record the outro right after this. So this is really weird. It's a weird sensation. So we'll be going live in about three, two, and... I'll do the introduction now. Right, we are live. I'm joined today on the Heart on the Arts and Minds podcast. I keep almost saying Hearts and Minds, which I don't want to in case there's another podcast called Hearts and Minds. Uh, and I'm joined by the one and only Mr. Eamon Cowan, artist extraordinaire, uh, sculptor, writer, graphic novel illustrator slash artist. This guy's wrote a song for Christy Moore. Really want to touch on that one. And he's penned some books, some graphic novels. And yeah, here we are. The two of us finally this time not not done badly. We're kind of we're doing it through phones because we have to have proxies these days because of the current state of everything. But um we're here now and we finally have the freedom to speak to speak freely. Eamon, let's take it right back to as as I try as I almost started at the last time and I was saying um you know, like when you first got into art, and you said like it was after your father got rid of the telly. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when when you asked me the last time, it occurred to me how placid we were. We just kind of accept. I kind of, in a weird way, I kind of agreed with it. You know, um, and I was only a kid. Yeah, I don't know why I agreed with him. But I actually I remember in school I had to bluff. People would be talking about stuff, and I, I had to pretend that I knew what the hell they were talking about to fit in. You know. <laughs> but after a riot of, of 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 space that I have, um, concurrent with contemporary events, I suppose, um, and I started to 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 really get into comics, and and I remember being able to pick up a comic and. I would be able to, but probably a lot of actually artists can do this now that I think about it, but I'd know who the artist was. Just by looking at it, yeah, I think that's something you develop after after a little while. Like I can always notice myself, uh, Annie, Annie Glenn Fabry, 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 I think is his name. He does the covers, and anytime I see, it's instantly recognizable. The same with like Simon Bisley and even Frank Miller. Frank Miller has a very he he's got a distinct style of posture and of the overall tone of a cover or of a panel that he does. He has these big block-headed characters who are just massive sacks of meat, and, and I love that way. You can just straight away you're you're, you're going like, oh, that's Simon Bisley, oh, that's Frank Miller, you know. Yeah, I, uh, uh, they just it's like a kind of a, a and I don't know if I often see starting artists wondering. How they're going to develop their style, but I think that kind of comes. That come you don't develop style is as you as you practice your art. It comes in a way that it can't come any other way. In, in like your handwriting or your voice or something. It just mm. you, you you end up with this whether you whether you want it or not. You end end up with that particular style. Yeah, I I found um, myself personally that when I started painting, now I I when I started drawing. I found the style really morphed from one thing to another. But when I started painting, I hated looking at landscapes. But all I could paint was landscapes. And I, and I found that it became a signature staple of what I paint is these landscapes that are high contrast and dark. And um, and they're obviously, they're all things that I don't like, you know, that I'm not. It's almost like the, the hand just goes where it goes and you can't stop it. And I think that's more prevalent in painting 
than it is in drawing. In drawing, it's very you're using a different part of your brain than what you are when you when you're painting. It kind of is because I notice when I'm coloring my my stuff, I find it's more helpful to be only ha- like if I I tend to listen to audio books and things because I find it's more helpful to be only half involved in the process rather than than, than examining every color. Mm. You can get all tied up in yourself, you know. You, you you can, and I find with color and paint, it's oh you, you you already know the palette, and if you have a predisposition of what you're going to do, like if you have a, a a foundation of ideas, it's very hard to visualize color as much as it is just to visualize. It's easier just to visualize a tone. Yeah, um, yeah, and and yeah, you need to kind of see it. Well, I think that probably is related drawing to your kind of. I, I, when I'm in the drawing process, I would see little snatches in my head of, of the, the drawing before I would draw it, it like a jigsaw puzzle. You know what I mean? And, and it, as, as, it, as it emerges on the page, it allows you to put out in the next piece of the puzzle. Right. I don't know. You know, you know Jack Kim Young Lee. You know that guy, he, he, he sort of draws fluently on those big 8x4. Uh, is is uh, this the guy, he, he does like these crazy detailed drawings? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, he, he, claims not, he claims not to have photographic memory. He claims not. Why not? I, which, why would you believe the man, of course? If he says he doesn't, he doesn't. Why do you use a similar process? You sort of, you're kind of seeing if... I just look at my own mind's eye now. You can imagine in here and down to we say the jaw. Mm. When you draw that, this allows you to go down to the chin and to the. You know what I mean? It, it's sort of like almost if you get a, a if you went into a completely dark room where there's a huge painting and you got a spotlight, a smallish spotlight, and shown it on any particular part of the painting. I think that would be kind of like the drawing process for me. If that makes any sense. Um, like you notice the shade first? I'd kind of play on the part of a hand and I, I kind of I'd draw I I know I could see the elbow. But when I get to the wrist I know now I know now I can see the hand. Oh yes, as for the starting point as yeah, I find that as well. I usually start with like a cheekbone or somewhere weird. It's never yeah. it's never where it should be, you know. It's always like I start with the left eye and move from there, you know. Actually, only recent years I have become using design principles as a photographer would. You know the different rules and rules of toads and golden spiral and things. They can be very helpful. Explain that to me. The the golden spiral. What's that? Well, it's it's sort of a it's 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 sort of if you take it's it's based on it's the it's the more advanced uh, um, system than the rule of toads. So there's you place the objects in your painting or your photograph in a way that's pleasing to the eye. That you don't, for instance, you don't usually place an object smack bang in the middle of your painting. The rule of toys would place your object somewhere within one toy in of each edge of the, of, the, of the picture. So we say slightly askew from the centre. Yeah, and there's a, another different rule of, of, of um, odds, which would you have uneven number of objects in the picture. Um, um, 
then you've got things like if you have a car just staring to the side of the panel or that, you wouldn't be too close to the edge of the panel. Right. So I mean, these I but you can't. You I would use them sometimes to start a, a picture, but after that I'm very much winging it. You know, mm. they're the photography techniques. Say a guy wants to take a picture of a tree. Right. He, 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 it's, it's more pleasing to put the tree to one side and maybe have another object in the other toward down the field rather than bang smack in the middle of the picture. That creates kind of a. Yeah, it, it creates kind of like a, a more. Because if you have something in the center mass, it takes all your focus. If you have something askew to it, you can see the picture as a whole. Contrast being used in that in that way, yeah. um, you know, contra blacks and white. There, there's a famous co- comic colorist which is, he, he and he's proven that he, color doesn't actually matter. He he, was, he, he could color a person blue, but it's the way he uses that makes it pleasing. He'd use a contrasting color, or he'd use a very strong foreground color and a weak background color, and, and really he, he uses any colors he wants. It's funny. It's fu- it's funny you should say that because there's um there's an artist in Clamell, um and she used to she I I know her through friends of friends in a bar that I used to work in, um she was a, a regular there, but she her her name is Emer Feenan, and I've seen it her, her work is fantastic, but a lot of times she'll use a certain palette and she done one of Kyle MacLachlan from Twin Peaks and she done it completely blue. Yeah, and she got it to work, and she done another one of Tony Soprano and got it to work. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sitting there with my Crayola crayons, going like, "Well, shit, I need to step up my game a bit." She's actually someone that I should interview because she's she's done some cool stuff. Yes, she's using those types of principles. That it's a different. She's looking at from a different sort of a, a different set of rules, as it were. You know that. Yeah, that's definitely what she's doing there. Yeah. Yeah. She's kind it's, of ingenious. It, it, it is. It takes a certain something to be able to see something very clearly in natural living color and then go, okay, I'm going to do this askew. I'm going to do this differently. This is not how I see it. This is not how I visualize it. You know? Who was the guy who done? Oh my God, what's it? Dave McKean. He done the uh, uh, Arkham Asylum, a serious house and serious earth. Have you have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. That's one of the that if if anyone out there is listening to this and is looking for a scary comic book to read, they should definitely check yeah. that one out because it will give you shivers. Batman or not, it is terrifying. Yeah, and that's saying something because it's hard to make comics scary. Yeah, it's it's very, it's very, very, very difficult. And he done it in this fantastic way with his unique art yeah. style of making it almost like a David Lynch film where everything is not quite everything is not quite yes. where it should be. Everything is askew and you don't know what you're looking at and then Grant Morrison ruined it years later by coming out and saying, oh yeah, that whole comic book's just, just a nightmare that Bruce Wayne's having. Which I was just like, why? Why? Don't do that to me. Don't, don't, don't ruin it. Uh, yeah. 
Do you know what I find fascinating too? You see artists, when they have no technical ability, they have, they're, 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 they, they can be quite crude, but what they produce in the end is has tremendous appeal. Yeah, and I think Dave McKean fits into that slot. He is a great artist, but it's very crudely... Um, same with Clive Barker. His paintings are very, very crude, but they evoke a certain emotion. Yeah, that, that, that quality of appeal is really the, the, what it's really about. It is, um, yeah, absolutely. Because if, if you look at some of... Um, what's his name? Famous, famous painter. I'm trying to think of his name. Oh, Picasso's. Picasso's pieces had symmetry... But it was very uh, rudimentary, you know. Yeah, I think he was actually trying to capture a fourth dimension. He was trying to, he was trying to say you take a cube. He was trying to show you the other side of the cube at the same time, sort of thing, you know. But he tried, that was part of his his um, approach. He was trying to say if he, he you'd have an, you know you take an eye that you look at it head on and then he placed that in a face that was three quarter view. You know what I mean? He's trying to show two dimensions of dimensions that can't be seen. He was trying to show them all at once. That's very far out there. You know? Yeah. I think that's that was sort of where he was coming from. Uh, I uh, thought Dali was a pure monster though. I thought Dali was very cut and paste. I, I thought da Dali Dali drives me nuts. Dali and what's the other one with the melted clocks? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That yeah, style of art, that Dadaism, or whatever you want to call it, just drives me bonkers yeah. because I feel like it exists for no real reason, you know. No, I I I'm way more accepting you're definitely capturing a, an absurdity within society that I think that was the point of it to that artist was making um was made the point of how fucking stupid the whole thing is um and, and also also like people say to me now I'm not the best artist in the world but family mainly say it to me why don't you sign the end of your paintings why don't you sign the end of your paint I never sign any of my paintings and I've done it once for a friend I gave him a, a I'd done a painting a while back he's a huge horror nerd um and I done, I, I done a painting of the demon of rats as as I've seen it, and it was more of like a, a an exercise in, in color proportions than anything else. But he said, "Will you sign it?" And because he's my buddy, I was like, "All right, I'll sign it." The reason I don't sign anything is is because if you start signing the stuff, people start looking for the signature before they look at the painting, and that annoys me. You know, it, it'd be the it'd be the same way. Hmm. Yeah, that to, for it to increase in value. Yeah. yeah, they would know that this, this, it would be like a huge $1 million bank note. They know it's going to increase in value, and then they put it in a safe. 
they don't really care. They, if it has provenance and if it's by Cezanne, no, they just wanted as a euro currency that will appreciate in value. But isn't, isn't that like the polar, the contrasting opposite of what art is meant to be? Absolutely. You know, you know, this is, that's a, that's a divine yeah. sin among the art world. If, in my own yeah. opinion, of course, like that is the most sinful thing you could possibly do is to take someone's work, hold on to it, and put it away so yeah. nobody can see it, and then sell it yeah. for sixteen million dollars. Like it's nuts. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. 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 It's, it's it's and it's probably another of those just. Just the absurdity of life, really, isn't it? It's, it's, it's um, just it's crazy situations that we all find ourselves in. In this topsy turvy yeah this 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 roller coaster of of a life. So I want to touch briefly on um. You, you said the first comic book that you that you got into was kind of two thousand AD, which is yeah. a staple among comic books, and it was it was my favorite comic book to pick up when I was like five. Because I knew there was a bunch of, there was loads of tits and violence in it, so I so I get my mom to 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 buy it for me for the six or seven bucks that it was, and she and she did she thought it was like the Batman comic books, you know, Batman goes on an adventure. She didn't think it was Judge Dredd stomping someone's head in on a curve, you know. Yeah. Uh, so what 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 drew you to two thousand AD? marketing on their part that whatever way they had to present it was widely available every everywhere and it was so um reliable it would come out every every uh, and they their format was i think they broke it into about six different um different stories and they had such a they had such a treasure trove of writers and artists so much so that they were all poached afterwards by by um the American kind of movie industry hit a kind of a slump and, and, and they just needed new ideas and they they poached a lot of those uh, the writers and artists to go over to America and sort of renovate the whole ideas. You know? they, they did that just, and they called it the British Invasion years later and I thought it was fantastic. And I, yeah. I I think the best thing to come out of that was for me personally, and I know it's a DC comic, but um, Swamp Thing, Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, was. Oh my God, Alan Moore is just most extraordinary person. He he interesting to listen to. He really is. But one of the things about Swamp Thing and his his initial run on Swamp Thing, people always jump to the fact that spoiler alert if you haven't read uh, Swamp Thing Volume One by Alan Moore. There, people jumped to the fact that it was, you know, um, he never was a human. He was just always this mass of foliage with delusions of grandeur. And that's all he'll ever be. Right. And he never was a human person. There was actually a, lo- a lot more beauty in there of th- that he would talk about things such as, um, he, you know, he gives that woman the mushroom and then he... T- he talks about like autumn coming and what's that? What what is autumn coming going to be like for the swamp thing? Autumn coming for for us is just like you know there's a bit of cold. You, you put on your jacket, you go outside the door, but it means this massively different thing for this massive foliage, and and it means something else to him as well. And it's a certain beauty Alan tapped into, of of understanding what it what it is to be a mass of vegetation. Which I, I don't know anyone that can do that. Like I don't know anyone that can think of like what would it like to be to, to be a shrub for a day? You, you know? And he really tapped into that and it was fantastic. And the art was was amazing. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know you're describing it fairly well that he kind of he, he, he kind of made a consciousness jump that this other thing has a sort of consciousness. Yeah, and and he delved into it. He he that's one thing he was brilliant at was jumping into the consciousness of anything and making a well rounded yeah. character out of everyone. Out of even out of yeah. out, out of like a massive shrub. Like that takes a certain amount of talent to make the, the life story of a massive shrub be riveting, horrifying yeah. and beautiful all at, all at the same time. Yeah, it's actually something that's been sort of I became aware of in recent years too—an obvious presence of of a, a human, if you want to call it, a sameness of consciousness in, in, in animals and things. You know, that's there's really no difference. There's no difference between us and the animals. We're not. We're not. We're not the paragon of the species. We're not divinely put here to rule the other. It's absolutely egotistical tribe. We're not anything special. What I always found with animals, one of the most fascinating things about them, is there's not one animal out there right now worried about the COVID-19 pandemic. (laughs) You know? And and I think when when you turn and look at your dog, and your dog just stares back and he's so happy to see you, that's all that dog cares about. You know, but now, now we're, yeah. we're we're getting massively off topic into into hippie culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although they have this, they have more or less proven that animals, like cattle and pigs and things, they can they 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 can anticipate and worry about the future. Really? Oh, absolutely. It's been proven. I mean, they they they've been given cues and things where they'd be tested and observed where the cows. Uh, Um, what was your favorite? Um, they were called progs. They weren't called uh, issues in two thousand and eighty. Splendid word trade. Do you remember the, the head guy? It was a zag? What was he called? He was a, was a zag's future shocks. And he announced the the uh, the the uh, splendid word trade in his own um, in his own language. Yeah, each prog. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, Judge Dredd was was. Uh, they, 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 they remind me, actually, the Judge Fred Wright, I think it was McMahon, but he reminded me a lot of the Cohen brothers of all people in the sense that the, the sub-characters, the characters that would, would be introduced to Dredd were more interesting in a lot of ways than him. He was very blank canvas. He was the epitome yeah. of justice because he was totally blind to everything around him. Yeah, he was just, he was like the straight guy, where everyone else was the mm. I just found that yeah. that world that they made in the background. I used to love the backgrounds of Judge Dredd when you just you could look and zoom. It was like where's Wally and see what people are doing around Mega City One on this day. And Mega City One always seemed to me as this paradise, but also this hellscape at the same time because you had all kinds of people interacting with one another. And they were brought to their natural yeah. extremes, you know? And as a kid, I wasn't bothered about their human rights. I don't know why. I kind of was a little bit, but 
Um, imagine living in some sort of a dystopian where where the, well, you could say it's happening a bit in America with, with the way law enforcement can appear to be able to impunity. But imagine living in that sort of world where, um, you know, the judge could come along and make a pronouncement. He sends you to the ISO cubes. Yeah, the ISO uh, cubes. For 20 years, the ISO cubes, yeah. And, and, and everybody uh, got life. It didn't matter what you'd done, you got life. Yeah, you got life, yeah, yeah. Um, and it had to be done because of the, 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 the growing populations and this was the only way to dispense justice. That, that, was a very, um, that was very prominent, right? The fact that Judge Dredd believed in the law so much, but in the background he was only enacting this right of kind of perjury by the powers that be, you know, he was never at, there was no justice in what he was doing. And it was, it's a, it's a, he was a clone. No, he, he was, him and, this is going to get very nerdy now for a couple of seconds, but him and his brother yeah. Rico were cloned from, from Judge Fargo, who was the first ju- judge to be like you know all hailed and then he got into this weird sex scandal and then he got exiled and or killed i'm not sure i can't exactly remember what way it went but um so then like the the guy he's meant to this is why he's a complicated character but doesn't speak is the person that he's molded from was also um flawed while dread isn't you know and his brother rico became flawed and he isn't and the, the greater scheme he serves is just incredibly flawed and he's like blinded by all this but he's an animal of instinct as in, and it, I, I think the film with Sylvester Stallone was terrible but there's that brilliant bit at the end of it where he's saying uh, we want to make you chief judge or whatever and he says no I'm a beat cop and I'm very late for duty and goes back out onto the street to, to patrol but that's very true of that character and of justice yeah. as a whole, that he is just the beat cop, you know? Yeah, I think his admirable, maybe, quality was the steadfastness he had. That yeah. He, 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 you know, but really, you know, I will say that it, it was easy for him to be steadfast in the sense that he was given all his supplies and he was backed by the system. And like I say, the American cop, if he decides to go a certain, he has all this infrastructure behind him that will allow him to exert his will. So it's kind of easy to be steadfast under those circumstances. Well, if I was given yeah, that kind of power, I'd probably be very steadfast as well. If I was given that kind of power, I'd probably be fairly steadfast as well. Because you could revel in it. Yeah, I, you, I mean, you would have no obstacles. No, I mean, you would not. When somebody has obstacles and, and, and handicaps and things, you'd admire them for being... Being steadfast. I remember they used to say about Margaret, oh, she's the Iron Lady and she's this. She's on 600 pounds of fucking wink and she's surrounded by bodyguards and she's looked after the rest of her life. And she can be It's easy to be tough in them circumstances. Yeah, when you've. Hello. That's. The, yeah, she was. I, I remember, um, just to touch on comic books. I remember an episode or um, an issue of Hell Hellraiser that I read uh, a couple of uh, about eight years ago, um, and Constantine 
meets these three lords of hell and one of them is this spinal column snake type creature and it has the head of margaret thatcher <laughs> and i thought that was fantastic oh yeah 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 there's another guy i was talking in the last interview that his his original demons they were not from a judeo-christian tradition they were described as explorers from netherworld like which made them fascinating this was a whole new sort of concept now his subsequent stuff did introduce the more traditional hell, heaven and hell, which I thought kind of diluted it a lot. But yeah, he, he, that first Hellraiser book was an absolute... Uh, hell down heart, wasn't it? No, you're thinking of Clive Barker. Who am I talking Who are you talking about? I'm talking about there was, huh? See, Hellraiser and Hellblazer are two different things. One is John Constantine. Oh, but I'm in love with Constantine. Yeah. Oh, sorry, man. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Do um, you know all the most times he saw Constantine in real life? Do you, you, you hear that story? Wait, what? He, he, he claims, he, he has this, you know, I, I think he's pulling all our legs, but he has this sort of wonderful notion that, you know, if you, if you, if you make things creatively, they can start to sort of happen in real life. Well, I suppose, which is not so far-fetched in the sense that everything around us was once, every man-making around us he's was definitely, once an idea. And I, I think right. he's definitely on the money or on the pulse there, because if you think about yeah. it, somebody created all these superheroes, and how many times do you see at these conventions people turning up dressed as Batman? You know? Yeah, and, and uh, well, he claimed, you see, he, he jumped in a little bit. He, he claimed he actually saw, he was sitting at a restaurant and Constantine came up an escalator and kind of winked at him, winked at him and, and kind of disappeared off to one side, but he didn't follow him. He left the mystery be, you know. But this is also but someone just, who's known to swallow a lot of hallucinogenic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I, I, yeah, he could be. I think he kind of tying with us too. Or oh yeah, definitely. Him. He's a, he's definitely one of those characters that likes to pull our legs a lot. You know. I remember. I, I find him absolutely refreshing. Jeremy reminds me of what the old druids of of, of Neolithic times must have been. That kind of character, you know. Oh, definitely. And he has the beard. Like he knows it too because he has the beard, the long hair, and he does all the magic uh, right. stuff as well. That just. I don't get, you know. I'm using your name again, by the way, but we'll soldier on. He does a lot of what? He does a lot of like magic stuff in his spare time that he talks about. But Alan Moore is just one of those guys, you know. And it seems to be very prevalent in comic books because Grant Morrison is the same way. He does a lot of these. He does a lot of these magic stuff and he's a bit of a lunatic as well, you know. It's one of those things that's always been there, and it's the same as when 
hunter-gatherers would you know do a cave painting of like a buffalo or some kind of ox or whatever with a lot of spears in it and then they go out that morning they see the ox and then they kill the ox you know that if what we create eventually becomes their own reality you know yeah i'm kind of presenting things a certain way to to like if you go into a court the old traditional court where the judge is high he's high and he, you have to look up at him and he, he has this black gown and white wig just to pres, present this imposing um you know it's so it's all this is visually provoked presented to 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 you and this part forces you into this certain frame of mind I mean, if you look at all those Malfield houses and all, and those houses of the landed gentry and things, I mean, they were specifically designed to make the guy inside feel big and to make you feel small. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I would, I, I would agree there. Yeah, definitely. That there is, like, in all architecture, all design, there is a subtle subtext that's sometimes not so subtle. It's just we've gotten used to it. And people don't even know themselves that they're employing. They, they'd be kind of magical technique, a glamouring, or they don't even know to employ those techniques. And here's another one. There's a riot going on in the streets and, and the people throwing bicycles through shop windows. Next thing you hear, bam, bam, bam. So all these fucking riot cops and straight lines are banging their shields with their batons in unison. They're creating a sort of magical... Um, um, image of an impenetrable wall mm. that's called mischief, and it works. It, 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 uh, well, I've always said that the only difference between a, a riot and an orgy is the intent. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you can, you can, you can put that one on my headstone. <laughs> And um, to get back, so after after you were in, uh, you know, you're reading all these comic books, you're absorbing all these arts. You didn't get into art for like a a long a long time after that, if I'm correct. Well, I was in art very much, and quite, can I say it quite kind of successful in the sense that I was getting good sort of. I even contacted the, the comic people. I sent them. Don't. What were they? When was 2008? I can't remember who the actual they were in Fleet Street, I think. But uh, I had I got into a business and and that sort of took years of my life. I it was just happened to be there, you know. Mm. And it's something I often think about people like um I think if you look at more successful people, they sort of write down in the morning what they're gonna do with their day. They don't just they don't just go across the road and walk in the factory for the next 20 years because it's a shoe factory. If it was a bacon factory, they'd walk in the bacon. That's what most of us do. Yeah, that's what they do. We kind of don't take charge, as it were. There's a certain so drive within within um, successful artists. There's a certain uh, conviction that they're right, that they know they're right, and that they know it will work out. And they kind of keep that headspace. And I think that's what really leads them to that level of success, you know? I think I'm successful anybody. I think to have this fixity of purpose mm. that um, and even they suffer and we all suffer we all suffer when we waver, I think. Even in our own art when we waver and don't finish things and we suffer. You need this part of application, I think. Anything. Athlete, business 
just need this fixity of purpose, I think. So tell me, tell me how you, how you, when you first kind of like, you, you, you had the business, you said that in 2008 it was, it was badly affected. I remember the, 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 um, the, the crash that time. Mm. And um, I, 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 when I started, it was, it was tough, a tough time for me, you know. But um, in a way, it allowed me to sort of uh, go back to my art and stuff. Actually, while I had the business, I was doing in parallel. I, I, I was doing a bit of I did a, I, While I had the shed business, I did a bit of sculpturing. And I have... Um, I have some stuff around the place. You know, I have stuff in hotels and things. I'll tell you last time I had um the one of Christy Ring. Yeah. It was done on a piece of art. I haven't sort of I found a lot of picture of him when he was maybe in this they say he played too long, but he, he he's in this pose. He he has the cap and all. But I got the I got the statue to lean to one side and I counterbalanced it with the base, you know? Mm. But uh and I, I got a huge compliment. His wife, when on the opening night, his wife was called, and she, she actually said it was, it was him, you know. That I, that you managed to capture that kind of composure that a person had. How, how, how exactly do you even start in this? Because I, that's something I've never done. I've done it once. I made my fiance a wand from Harry Potter, um, and I carved yeah. it out, out of a bit of wood and a stick. And that's about that's as far as I ever went with anything like that. Um, and then I tried again another time with like a big log, just a random log. And I said, right, I'm going to do this. And it, and it just it didn't go for me the way that I wanted that. And I kind of done the I threw a tantrum and walked away from it. How do you even try and sit down there and carve something in a 3D image with like a chisel and very rudimentary tools, I suppose? Well, you know what's really fascinating when. I was doing the quick it was a lot I say I didn't take pictures as it was progressing but you could actually look down into the log and see the side of his face come out you know and the side his elbow here but there's a famous um, do you know the captives did you ever see the captives by Michelangelo no he, he was he was executing them before he died he died in the part of their execution but they're kind of big blocks of, of marble, but you've got an elbow sticking out here and a chin there, and then it, it's very, it's a bit like if you've got something in the river and you drain the river and you see it gradually emerge. So, so you're, so, so you do it kind of, how should I describe it? Like you do it almost in the inverse of drawing, because if you're drawing, you're drawing a circle and you're adding bits onto it. This, you're taking bits off and you're kind of visualizing, visualizing what it is. As you're removing segments, yeah, you kind of well. There's another good point. Somebody that works in clay and things, they work from the inside out, whereas the sculptor is working from the outside in, like you say. Wow. And the, the clay, clay is really hard. I mean, clay is. I'm not. I'm not minimizing clay, but the, the clay, you have the ability to add bits on and, and take bits off. But with 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 sculpture, you don't. You can't. Do you know what I mean? If you if you make a wrong move on the timber, you can't really add bits. Well, you can, but it's 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 really unheard of to add things on. You know, mm. I was no, I kind of would would uh, I don't I don't actually understand the process myself of how I would sculpture. To be honest, it it's kind of it would be you know. Um, 
you'd kind of go down and say, you're tired in the air, we'd say. And you maybe move down to the jaw and um, from that, even that one little piece, you could then probably decide where, you're going, where, where the hand is in relation to this. You could do it by a, rel- a kind of a relative relativity. That's kind of the way I do it. It's, I do kind of draw like that too. I'd kind of, um, it's, it's a hard thing to describe. It's, it's, it's a sort of internal model, which you have kind of somewhere in your head, like 3D printing or something, I don't know, that you kind of apply to the, to the outside world. I didn't know I'd be carving on. My brother started carving, my brother Sean, he was very good at it too. When I borrowed one of his little pieces and I started to carry and I discovered I could do it. But I'm just wondering now that I think about it, was it simply an extension of drawing? Like at that point, I was, I had a good knowledge of anatomy and the shapes of things. So that was a huge help, you know. So um, when you when you went from, um, you know, like losing the business, unfortunately, um, how did that, how how does one come into like writing their own graphic novel? How does that even happen? Because like, I've never known, I've never known Ireland to have an industry like that. There isn't, and there's no tradition actually. There's no tradition whatsoever for. And you know, it blows me away. Do you know, like you said, you're into the amount of artists and writers, and maybe I'm biased, but they they and they're at the quality. Yeah. Uh, it's one alone. It's see, there's a there's a thing here in Ireland, right? And I don't want to say it's because we're Catholic, but I kind of feel like it is sometimes. Um, I was always very artistic as a young child, and unfortunately, now my parents were great. They always uh, nurtured, but like they, they weren't artistic themselves, but they always encouraged me to draw and stuff like that. And as I went on in school, like I failed art, believe it or not, when I when I done when I done my leaving cert, and I think I failed at my junior cert as well. I can't remember why. I I know I just failed it. Um, it, it, it it's a kind of a, a thing that because because it's part of expression and even writing is part of expression unless you're writing about something that's kind of ignorant we say and I don't mean that this in a bad way but like something that's harebrained in the way of like sports or I don't know something something else if you're writing about that's fine because everyone can touch base on that and you're not touching too much on, on your own emotions when you start to describe your own emotions or show your pain in a painting or a drawing or whatever or show sorrow or anything like that, there's a certain amount of uncomfortability that comes with it because us as Irish people, just we're not good at touching on that and, and we don't want to know about it. When you do anything creative, you walk a native down, naked down the street. <laughs> no, that's what you do. When you, yeah. do, when you write a song or you walk and, and, and put it out there, you're walking naked. And that's why a lot of people are afraid to talk in public. Do you remember the time when the teacher humiliated in school? Yeah, like, be, be I, I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be afraid to speak. Even what we're doing now, uh, we're exposing ourselves at the moment to ridicule. We're making it, it is a creative process. For, uh, and and um, a lot of what I'm saying is probably rubbish. But anybody that would try this would, would, would has that sort of feeling, you know. There of, is a feeling of vulnerability, and it's something that I had to really learn, and I'm sure you did as well is to block it out, right? And I think it comes... Yeah. Uh, imagine uh, me and you made a movie, right? 
and I directed it, and you, I don't know, wrote it or vice versa. And you're sitting down for the first time ever with the audience to watch, and you're really proud of it, and it comes on, and the only thing going through your head is like, oh my God, it's too long. That line is too long. That color is too bright. It's going to seem stupid. And and the first the first instance of it is is when you're handing up the essay to the teacher, and she's reading it, and you just hear a huff and puff. All she cares about is the grammar in it. She doesn't care about what you wrote in there, but you think she cares about what you wrote in there. And it's blocking out that feeling of that that insecurity that you really, as an artist, as any artist that's listening to this right now, get rid of that feeling, right? That feeling's dumb. That's just doubt. Leave doubt out of your mind. You, you need that conviction in there that what you have to say is important. And I encourage everyone, whatever your art is and whatever you do is not going to be accepted by everyone. This podcast won't be accepted by everyone. My paintings won't be such that everyone and same, same, same with yours. You just need to get it out there and you'll find your own tribe. And that's the important thing is to find where it fits in. Uh, so how did, how did you end up starting to to do comics? Because I was saying like there's no real industry for it here. How did you, how did you start that process? I went with all the Tunnel Buskin Festival and um, they were kind of looking for promotional and they're, they're, do you know, do you know Simon Malloy? No. And Mark Ryland. I got very lucky with some, with some of the, Mark Ryland's, a, he's a team leader, but very innovative sort of a fella, you know, very, um, very, uh, I don't know how you describe him. He, he'd be very look for opportunities to get people sort of up and walking and, you know, in kind of an innovative way. But I, I kind of, kind of teamed up with him and, and Simon Malloy inside. He's the same kind of human dynamo. And they wanted uh, some way to promote tourism in, in Clonmel and promote awareness of Clonmel. And, and um, we started this. Oh, yeah, it was, it, it was 
I was drawn. It, it was so intense. I think I did a whole thing in about three months. Wow. How, how many pages is in this? Because I happened... I, I was hoping to have this gotten read by the time I'd done this interview, but I, I couldn't find it. It was bottled out everywhere. It was in the... Actually, there's one copy in the library, I think. Oh, we can't go to the library. We can't go to the library. And I brought it around town. I knew I'd made it when I saw my name in town in the library. I knew I'd made it, you know. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, the... the the O'Neill, the guy that, that uh, I've always meant to say it, that I think he should have a statue in Clonmel. He's such a legend, like. And he would have beaten Clonmel if he... He would have... He would have... Uh, he had the military. You know, Kudos to beat Clonmel if he had been... See, the Irish, ironically, joined up with the Royalists against Clonmel. The Irish, uh, not, uh, who were kind of in exile... Join the Irish, the wild geese, whoever you'd call them. They joined with the royalists. They were all on the same side, which kind of uh, makes a joke of you know the way things are all in the middle at the moment. But there was the one time Connor would have been beaten if 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 O'Neill had been supported by the by the royalist leadership was very wishy washy. And they were actually afraid of Cromwell, and they didn't really support O'Neill. But he still gave. Cromwell the hiding of his life, but he, he, he only was just up against overwhelming forms. And he tricked, he tricked Cromwell and, and, and him and his men um, disappeared during the night. And Cromwell thought they were still in town and he did a deal with the town, Cromwell did a deal with the town mayor that he'd leave the town live if the country, very for the language, but he wanted to kill all the soldiers who had fought such a, a violent campaign against him. Against, you know, you know, he wanted to kill all them. They said, okay, we agree to that. But Colin didn't realize when he signed the agreement, the soldiers were all gone at that stage. A couple of thousand. I mean, they were all crazy. It was like Colin at that time only went from about Oak Road down to the West Gate. It was only a small area. And there were thousands of people, you had the townspeople and you had all the Irish soldiers uh, crammed into. Uh, oh, we made a movie too with 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 what left me rehab. Based on Cromer. It's it's it, it's it's uh, it's um, that was another great experience. We made a little movie, and you know, all based on the same story. That's but, uh, that's that's another thing there where you kind of at, at that moment that must have been surreal for you when you're doing this graphic novel then you're making a movie and then you know your life started to go kind of like spiral into this great thing that must have been like an out-of-body experience yeah yeah and i i, I yeah just something about the, the, you know the creative process when you have an audience um, it must be, and I, I know, and you know what? It's the best when you're starting out. I often, you often hear writers and people like that saying, "An actor is even that become famous," and it's never quite as good as those first few movies or that first book or two. Yeah, that's really that. That's there. You already had it looking back for your first fix, you know. Yeah. Um, I think another one on um, uh, with, with with Mike Desmond, another. Absolute gentleman. He, 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 I had him as a force, and when I'd left the boss, we did a, a book on the Irish Civil War. 
built the siege of Waterford. Um, other, so many untold stories. I remember Mark Ryan, Ryan said, will you have a research around here and see if you can come up with some stuff, you know, you can write about. I said, what's around here, you know? I found, I found enough stories in Ed Finnan alone, you know, that, that would, would, uh, would fill a thousand books. I, I, I'm all going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, become lost in time. That's a pretty bad. That's the, that's so, the saddest know, part. Northampton. When you so so, how many graphic novels have you actually done? Do you know, I have literally started hundreds. I have. I, I'm quite fast at drawing, and I have. And I was telling you that I, I have this real pro- problem in recent years of t- nine or ten pages, and then I have a better idea. Nine and almost to a point, it's maybe starting to affect my mental health almost. But anyway. I have uh, another one on Petticoat Loose. It's kind of an electronic format. So, She's another fascinating. So explain, yeah. explain Petticoat Lewis to listeners who don't know who she is. Well, we were going to call it the terror of the Mockable Down. And that's, that goes back thousands of years. I mean, um, I mean, what she eventually, there was a, a real person who, her name was Culligan. She went over the mountains there. Yeah. I'm a bit rusty on this, but... Hang on, did you say her name was Culligan? But she was what you'd call a very powerful, independent-minded woman of the 18th century. And um, I think she was kind of feared and... The story was that she, seven years after she died, she reappeared as, as, as this witch after her death. Now, the curious thing, I could never find an actual connection between, like, this witch wasn't in any way like, like um, Mary Culligan and her parents are, are in any way. But I could never see why this conclusion was drawn, but I think it was a sort of a, I think women were being demonized, midwives and things, and it was she was sort of a repressive symbol for the church, I think. See, the, all the stories end up with this uh, priest performing an exorcism, and he he he, uh, he, he banishes, eventually, he banishes uh, Petticoat Loose to Bailock, eventually. He tries to banish her to other places around the world, but eventually she ends up in Bailock. And she is given the task of emptying Baylock with a timber. The, the final irony being that Baylock is, is apparently bottomless. And uh, if you go up to Baylock on, on a quiet day, I don't know if you're familiar with it there, it, there is a, it's kind of a stillness there, a kind of a, there is a quality to the place there, I often find. And you can see where a kind of a mystique grew up around the place. There's some strange stories to uh, when I was researching them. 
it was this story of this gentry they got together to the, the, the question came up as to whether Baylock was bottomless. So they decided they'd empty it. But they had the problem in Dorothy's at the time to, to empty the fucking lake. So they got hundreds of men up from Cahill and they were going to drain the lake somehow to, to, to settle a bet. But then a report came back that the Cahill was on fire. And they had to abandon ship and, and go back to Cahill being on They could see Cahill on fire from where they were. And when they got back, Cahill was not on fire. Really? And the, uh, yeah, and the whole thing was abandoned. That's very, that's very peculiar. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? And this is also to the party at the time. There's another guy, he, he, he committed suicide there. Have you, have you ever been to Baylock? No, I've, I've actually no idea where it is. It's up, it's up in the V there. Oh, sorry, yes. The, the one by the V, yeah. I know, I, I know it very, very well. I, yeah, I think you can't hear me, but I can hear you perfectly, so carry on. I can hear you again. But I'm, anyway, it's quite small. But anyway, this guy folded up his clothes and committed suicide, apparently. But they never found him. It's not that big. It's like the size of a football field. They never found him. And they searched all the... All the some gorgeous roadie down from there. Now you should see it in the summer. Jesus Christ. And... and um, they never found them. And there's a few stories like that, but there's some fascinating mythology or stories, whatever you'd want to call it. But she, she, she used to sort of harass people in the road, you know, and she, she'd take on different forms. What did you say story. her name was? There's a rich tapestry of, of, of mythology and real life stories that go back. I used to find too researching her was an image of a horse with a sort of lion's head, which goes back to Neolithic times. And for some reason, this was associated with, with petticoat loose. What? What did you say her real name was? What's that? What did you say her name? Her real name was. Her real life. Apparently, there's a few. There's a few suspects. The most likely one was a woman called, I think it was Mary Culligan. That's strange because my surname is Culligan. What? That's weird because my surname is also Culligan. Oh, amazing, yeah. That's weird. Yeah, what's that? It, yeah, you can actually see her headstone in, it's oh, not Liz Moore. Like I said, it's quite a while since I went into all this, so it's, I'll get a little fuzzy, but... um. She, I think, what happened to Petticoat Loose and her, they became something that the church kind of wanted to repress. I think that's, I think she became a sort of, it's hard to describe it, but it's all to do with, um, you know, the way midwives were looked down on and, and treated as witches and things. It's, mm. it's, um... Uh, kind of, kind of anti-feminist propaganda is the way, the best way I describe it. That's yeah. what really, really was. That's what it really was in the end, I think. So, uh, just to just to go as askew for a second. Before, before I 
forget, I was also writing a book on the whole thing based around the Jack the Ripper time, to that time it, it takes in London. And it, uh, but anyway, I was writing a book on her as well as, as this. Yeah, but what were you going to say? That I just wanted to touch briefly on, uh, you said that you wrote a song for Christy Moore. That's right. I wrote quite a lot of songs. I, 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 there, was a, there was a band in England called Toss the Feathers. They were, they were almost as big as the Pogues. They never they did an awful lot of recording, but I wrote all their stuff. And um, so a, a mistake happened at the time, and I stopped writing for them. It was a, it was a communication breakdown. That it was a sheer mistake, and I stopped writing them, and they started went to what? Um, where am I going with this? <laughs> oh yeah, I came upon Christy then in, in the course of this, you know. And uh, do you remember the Birmingham Six case where the boys were 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 uh, convicted innocently. Remember those lads, the six? Not really. Six. Uh, Explain they, that. They, to me. They, 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 were, they were picked up for the Birmingham pub bombings, and they were basically fitted up, maybe mistakenly, but I don't. They were probably a mistake. In fairness, it was a mistake because there was a gang, an IRA gang afterwards called the Balkan Street Gang. And they, they, they were in jail. They were in, I think they were the H-blocks, but they, they admitted that they had committed these, this Birmingham pub bombing. The, the six boys were completely innocent. And uh, I, I got very passionate about this, and I wrote this song. One of the, one of the lions in the lawn, they were basically, you know, tortured. They tortured for, for confessions, and the, the forensic stuff was, was very shoddy. And, but they were locked up. And this this uh, movement came about to to have them freed, and I wrote this song and, and gave it to Christy, and um, he he brought it out. It's on his Smoke and Strong Whiskey album. He brought it out as uh, as 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 it's not actually it's not by any shape or form the best song I've ever written, but it was topical and. He he added a lot to it. We, we between the two of us, he used to ring me backwards and forwards, and he added a bit to it. And and uh, I wrote other stuff that he didn't actually sing, that he didn't record. You know, mm. that was that was brilliant. Yeah, I I I, uh, I I I have quite a few songs out there. Actually, when I was writing the um the uh, the, the Civil War. Uh, uh, Graphic novel. I wrote a song about it as well, called "The Khaki and the Grey." I must record it sometime. In the shimmering haze, you could not see the khaki from the grey. You know, the 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 the, the IRA fellows were didn't have uniforms because they were sort of on the on the losing side of civil war, so they had to go around in cities. At that point, you see that. Uh, the other side, uh, the Free State side, they were also called the IRA, but anyway, they were kind of supported by the British. They were, what would you call it? They were supplied with, with heavy equipment and things. So, you know, the, the Liam Lynch's side, they, they wanted to hold out for the 32 counties. Uh, uh, but they were very much, they were hunted into the ground, like, you know. There's one, there's one case of these six guys, they were starving, they were throwing the rifles out at this stage, away at this stage, and they rode out to sea. They were on the run. 
and uh, they were picked up by a passing steamer and uh, they all ended up in America and they became quite successful. One of them became more of Boston, you know, but um, the song, yeah, is, is, I must try and do something with it. I have a page actually on which is defunct. It's lying idle for a long time. I might put it on that. I have a page called Graphic Novel Secret Award or on Facebook or something. Yeah. Which, uh, um, you know, a huge problem with you with the format. It takes so long. The amount of work that it takes uh, to do it on your own. You really need you need a pencil, an inker. Uh, a colorist uh, and a letter really to get it done you you know this better than me sure you know to get it sort of done in a certain amount of time although I have seen some the name of From Hell Alan Moore's From Hell yeah I know it well Eddie Eddie Campbell he, he did uh, he, he drew it on himself but that's all just drawn in ink and he hand wrote the uh, the lettering but he got away with it you know that's a, that's amazing because I always that's something I always struggled with um, because I had this mad idea one morning and I don't know what it is with me and sleep dep- deprivation I become very optimistic about what I can do and I entered work at 10 to, 10 to 6 in the morning after getting about three and a half hours sleep maybe at a push and that's being generous and when I'm in when I'm in work I kind of go on autopilot and I start thinking and forming different kind of stories in my head and adding to stories that have already been wrote and one of them was yeah. I actually drew I think you commented on the picture I drew um, a picture of uh, a guy covered in bandages and the bandages are kind of uh, falling off and he's got a he's got like a Stetson cowboy hat on him and I had this fantastic yeah. idea for almost like the Magnificent Seven but they've grown old right and it, it was essentially the story of uh, the foundations of um, a midwestern town in America during the during the frontier times, and where how those foundations were built, and this one kind of agent of chaos thrown into the middle, who was the guy in the bandages. And I started, and I started. I think I'd done like the first couple of pages, and fitting. Li- oh, was this in graphic novel Uh this is just on on uh, on a page just to try and see if I could do it. And I think I got... Novel format, not written. It was in actual graphic novel format, was it? How do you mean? Explain that to me. It wasn't written in prose. It was... It, was, it Pro- wasn't written like, a, you know, in prose or, or... It was an actual comic format, was it? Yeah, I started, I started drawing it. Like. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah. And I just found it um, infuriatingly difficult that there's a, a drawing that I done that I can't fit the freaking lettering in on the top. And I then I I, t- I still have the idea rolling around in my head, but then I tossed it to to the side as and I couldn't could not do it because it was just seemed like there's so much work that goes into doing this. That's why I commend you for what you've done because it's an insane amount of work. Well, you know what, I, I kind of cheat in some ways in that I would put, say, picture number, panel number one, I would put, I would write the dialogue in and I would put sufficient dialogue, which is just right, and if it starts to spill over, I can go into panel two. So I'm kind of writing and sketching at the same, and that way I can, I, I found I could, I could, uh, you know, 
measure all out properly that I wouldn't have. There's an interesting directive from 2018 to the artist. Did you ever read that? No. It says, I can't remember exactly, it kind of says things to the effect, effect leave the top third of your artwork free for lettering. Uh, the, the first person to talk, put them to the left of the panel. So that, of course, the, you know, the speech bubble appears over their head and there isn't a crossover and stuff. And it's quite, it's quite helpful, you know, but I... I, like I say, I use this technique, for instance, say a, a, a character has to say something to another character, so I draw them in just one panel, and I start what he's about to say, and if it'll fit, if it'll fit, it'll fit, if not, I do a second panel, and I sort of do it that way, you know what I mean? Mm. That traditionally, not the way, traditionally the way it's done is, actually I have another, really, I, I did, maybe three issues of um, a thing called what was it called oh Jesus it was about a witch a, a, a writer from New York wrote it and the chorus was from Brazil and the letter was, was from Canada what the hell was it called oh, Jesus but anyway my point is the writer used to send me the script and and he would tell me where in the past, like, like he, he would assign uh, the, what, the, what, the script to each panel. That's the way it's normally done. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's uh, uh, show two bank robbers running from bank on the left, show all woman stumbling and have all, and then underneath would say what she's saying. You wouldn't have to put that in. But what you say would put in context, so you would, would have to draw this. And then panel two, you know, have bank robbers sitting in their car, and then there will be a description. One is, one is sniffing coke, and then you draw that, and then, then they, underneath they draw what they're saying, and it would proceed like that. That's the way it's normally done. That's, um, that sounds like I would. I could probably show you the way I do it. If if we're ever allowed out of solitary, it's, uh, it's I, quite. I'm going to put something on YouTube. Yeah. I, I think my way, for a writer artist, the way you're doing it, yeah. my system would work, would work better. I, I, I've taken that dream and pulled back its hair and cut the throat on that dream, to be honest. <laughs> huh? I, I've taken that dream of putting that. A graphic novel together and I pulled its hair back and then cut its throat and just let that dream die a slow death because I, I it, it is and it's it's a great it's a great story but like honestly can you even can you even put a western comic out there and have someone read it you know probably not well, in a way that's, that's what you really should do because it's like a fresh idea that's really what should be done, really, I think. Because if you try to do a walking dead thing now, or whatever, what's 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 happening now? Whatever's happening, you're already behind the posse. Yeah. That, that's what people don't know. That boat has flown. If you try to do the successful thing of last week, it's too late. The cowboy thing is what you should do. I d I don't I I'll tell you what, right? When this pandemic is over if it ever ends or if we all just die you know the aliens listen to this in the far future will know wow he had that guy had a great idea once 
But when this pandemic is over, what I'll do is I'll, we, we'll hook what up at some... Hmm? Have you got a split this like? Have you got a... I have... I have, have you got a script? I have a rough... I have a rough outline. In case I could do a few proposals for you if you want, and maybe you could... I don't know. Or I could do uh, I could do a few pencils which you could adapt to your art. Do you get me? Yeah. Like, I could do a few pencils that would indicate where you would put the, the dialogue and stuff and how you'd spread out the dialogue and stuff. I'm looking too high handed here, by the way. No, 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 no. Do you know what I mean? If it's just that technical thing, I could probably do you some ropes and, 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 and space that there is a problem with spacing your dialogue really i think there's um, there's there's also the problem of like actually doing it too with, with me and i think with everybody you know let's start recording now right so we're, we're live again and just just keep the flow of it going you know yeah and if you get fucked up i mean if you, you must be getting but yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's the the, the goal of the podcast is to Unite artists and give every artist an hour. Just to give them at least an hour and hopefully it goes on longer. And just to have people um, kind of, you know, to have the, to have everyone know that each individual artist is always hidden behind their work, like no matter who they are. And to give them that centre stage, because, you know, musicians and all this, people have made it big, they get too much attention. Well, I find there's a lot of, like, indie people out there that are, doing like incredible things and people won't pay any attention because the magazine cover didn't tell them to to go listen to this you know oh sure there's some fantastic talent there i mean you see on instagram and things don't you i mean that's Inst just completely gone unacknowledged yeah instagram and then the art is uh, what you call isolated it's a very isolated way to work it is and you're on your own and you don't have a support network around you it's not like uh, and you can't ever go out and test it you know i think instagram is a blessing in that way that it connects us all and it, it gives us that avenue to test what we're doing and to see if everyone's if it's resonating with people or it's not resonating with people and i think that's yeah, just just throw it up there and, and see what happens. Like I've done some, yeah. I've done some really kind of ad hoc, really quick drawings that I've put on, on Instagram, yeah. and they've got like a, a nice little bit of feedback that I wasn't ever expecting. Mm -hmm. And it's better than leaving it on the desk and to go into a folder and never be talked about, you know. I'd be questioning him, will I do this, will I do that? And that was his uh, his reply, just that, well, it's better than having to run to the bed, you know, or it's yeah. better having it. Um, it, it it's, I mean, you have to have an outlet, don't you, really? You do, yeah. It's a fantastic thing, too, I think, that things like an Amazon and, you know, the self-publishing stuff. That's great, too, I think. It's it's great, um, but I always I always wonder how how legitimate it can be, you know. Well, there's some fantastic. There are some really good quality writers coming on there. That that I know what you're saying, but you they had this awful um year, in in years ago they had this awful thing called vanity publishing, where you you know you pay the printer to pu publish your book and it was called that. But uh, the, the public. 
Christian Rhodes is in complete disarray. It doesn't know what's hit it with with with, with everything. And it has got, I think it's as a, a legitimate out, outlet as anything at this stage. When you see some of the quality of the writing. Yeah. Yeah, some, some, some. There is some great stuff out there. I'm actually, I'm literally on your Facebook or on your Instagram page right now as we speak. I'm, I'm looking through your artwork to see if there's anything kind of, kind of stand back out at me. And there's the one that I feel like if we first connected on, as far as I know, uh, was the Tintin and the God of War. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I love Tintin. My God, when I was a, when I was a kid. Oh yeah, I, I never mentioned that. I used to read Tintin, and I was there. I wasn't just reading; I was that boy. And it, it, sometimes it, get, it makes me a little nostalgic for maybe to be a boy again. That magic, you know. Yeah, there's. A... I think uh, I, I think a lot of us are suffering from a lack of innocence. We we know everything. There's no mystery to anything. Yeah. Just a forest, you know, taking picture from space and. Every every plan can be analysed. There's no, we've lost something. I think in recent years we have. But yeah. I always find that out there somewhere, there's an artist that's probably doing something right now. That's the next big thing, but it'll never be the next big thing because there yeah. is so much of it. And I think of even some yeah. um, some like uh, comics that just went by the wayside, and even some movies and things that totally went by the by the wayside. Um. What one, yeah. one, one thing that always. Hmm? One thing that always is the influence of something that at the time doesn't seem what whatsoever prevalent to what's happening, but years later becomes almost a format for everything else to come and things that pop into my head. One of them in particular is one of my favorite books, and it's a very hard to read book because it's very strangely wrote um but it's a uh, roadside picnic have you ever heard of that it was by i forget them. there were two brothers arkady and boris i think they were they were um living in communist russia at the time the soviet bloc and they wrote this i they wrote an idea of uh a kind of like a crash landing of a space anomaly that was left behind and the idea was that it wasn't this significant and important thing, but rather it was detritus from aliens that came, stopped, almost like they had a roadside picnic and just left the rubbish there. And to humanity, it's this massive thing, and it causes all kinds of weird things to happen, like people to come back from the dead and um, random matter to reform into um, into ways that it was before. Like I remember, I think there was one part where like a train is floating as if it was still on the monorail, even though it's meant to be collapsed. And, it, and and there's these people called stalkers that go in and out of this place called the zone. Now, that would probably resonate with anyone that's kind of seen any other kind of fiction where there's a zone and there's stalkers. Like, that's still a thing in a lot of video games and, and comic books nowadays. Of the idea of that zone, that no-go zone, and these people that brave it because they have no other aspirations in life other than to run into radi- irradiated areas and steal these... Anomalies and things. Oh, a la Chernobyl, is it? Hmm? A la Chernobyl. You wonder where they start to explore Chernobyl at the moment. Yeah, and it was actually before Chernobyl, but I I, I think yeah. that it might have resonated there a little bit because I know... I, I know for a fact there was, a, there was a video game that came out in 2004 called Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl. 
and it literally put yeah, you in the shoes in the shoes of a stalker that would go into these zones um that and, and mad max mad max set a format for all post-apocalyptic fiction and as we look at it now it's almost kind of it never gets it gets nodded to within post-apocalyptic fiction but it never yeah it, it, it's never kind of seen as the the granddaddy of it all i suppose some people do herald mad max as as the way that it is but there you know there's a world that just needs a bunch of comic books tying in with it that, that i want to see more of the mad max world but i never can i think george miller holds it very close to his heart yeah that would be that yeah that was completely underexploited wasn't it, it, it really i think is. they're kind of a good red character now wasn't he the, the mad max himself he was there was there's so many interpretations of the character even though it seems very simple in the first film and even in the second one and don't talk about yeah. the third one but the for the first two movies yeah. it, it's like and i think george miller said this himself it's it's the legend of Mad Max that he's not actually a real person but mm-hmm. it's a story constantly being retold and he inhabits this different role that never actually really happened in the post-apocalypse and it was just you know and even in even in Fury Road they, I think the original Mad Max was he was called Mad Max because he was angry but in the new one he seems to be called Mad Max because he's a little bit nuts you know okay. And do you know what I know? Do you know the way they made the um, bad guys kind of? They weren't just bad guys. They were capable of any sort of perversion. They, yeah. they, they The way they implied that, and that gave it a tremendous sort of a, a, a dread. Like, Jesus, imagine being at the hands of those guys. Yeah, there was... the years I came to the first Manhunter. Did you ever play that game Manhunter? Yes, I love it. We got weird fucking gangs. And because of their perversity... Uh, it just gives them an extra fucking kind of an Dude. extra reason or an extra reason to be absolutely at the top of your game in terms of survival. You do not want to fall into the hands of these guys. There was something very, very disturbing about that Manhunt game. Yeah. And it wasn't just the yeah. violence of it. It was the urban decay, the, per- the perversity. It was, it was everything about it. Everything about it made it very uncomfortable. Yeah, and it was, it, was, it was all contrived like that. Even the main guy, he kind of had no personality. He was a pure stone-cold psychopath. He, he, yeah, then, he, there was even an uncomfortability in the character that you played as. You know, like even... Yeah, everything yeah. about it was very uncomfortable. Yeah, and that, that, the, the, the guy that was making the, 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 the movie... Oh, uh, that was disgusting. He was... He was the most disgusting character in a video game ever yeah. because his commentary over as you'd brutally yeah. kill these people. Yeah. That was... Yeah. He was kind of a sexual... Uh, yeah. Uh, he's actually a well-known actor, that thing. He's a Brian, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. That's him. That's mm. him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and the grainy side... CCD camera like footage and everything was just it was like a very sophisticated scary game of hide and seek it, it was and that's and normal stealth games go in this kind of you're trouting an avenue towards your goal but yeah. that was hide and seek yeah. that's what it was it was hide and seek for adults you know yeah but I guess it was kind of I suppose it's 
It's an amazing how the mind can sort of look at all that and still be okay. <laughs> um, I had a couple of sleepless nights after it. I, I, I think, or a couple of, a kind of a, a more of an outlook on humanity differently afterwards. You know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It was, it was just that, That's. I mean, it just shows you. You think, you think the ideas are all gone, but, but really. We haven't even, I don't think we've even started, really. And maybe there's something there, like you say, if <coughs> all these sort of individual artists, fantastic creative people, whatever, they, musicians, whatever they happen to be, we might be able to evolve some sort of a system where there is, it is a bit more uh, democratic. Mm. A, lot of that, a lot of what you're describing, you know, it's just right driven by profit and people playing safe and all the right, driven by all the wrong things. Yeah. But I mean, if we could open that away, you know, um, it seems, it seems kind of like a... Lovecraft, obituary. Hmm? I, I was reading Lovecraft, the obituary there, and they don't even know he was a writer. He was sort of... It's amazing. It's, the guy that it's wrote the, the guy that actually wrote, he, he had somebody against them his whole life. And I think the person who wrote his obituary, or was that Edgar Allan Poe? Oh, that's Poe. That's Poe. He fucking hated him so much. He demonized him. And, and in the demonization, he made him famous. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was Poe. Yeah, yeah. But Poe went off drinking and he mysteriously died and he ended up. They found him dead in someone else's clothes. Yeah, in somebody else's clothes with a hat on in an opium den or something, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. like, how the fuck does that happen? Well, I heard that the most plausible theory I heard, and I don't even buy that, is at the time, you... You know, the idea wasn't great, so there was an election at the time. So they reckon what they were doing was they were getting pissed drunk and they were getting him to um, impersonate different people and vote in different boats to, you know, yeah, but political. I, I, I highly doubt that Edgar Allan Poe gave a flying fidget about that, like, you know what I mean? No, I think they had him pissed and, and kind of forced him to. This is the theory. They forced him to kind of vote in all these different boats, and then I don't know, he died from. Ah, I don't know, I can't get my head around it. Uh, yeah, but, but, but uh, yeah, Paul, he keeps coming up. He, he does, keeps, he uh, keeps rearing his, I won't say ugly head, but he keeps rearing his head. But like, he's one of those writers uh, or poets, really, that just is almost timeless. Yeah, you know, and even though, even though he ha his work is definitely set during a certain time and place, it's it still can it can still resonate now. Even even the, the likes of Orwell, you know, like no matter, it's timeless. It'll always be a, a disease of society that they speak of, you know. Yeah, when you do read his life, you're saying what? Because when he was in he he wanted a job and he somehow got. An audience with the president at the time, Taftus, I knew it was. But he, he, when he when he got to the president, he was drunk. He was looking for a job as a secretary. I don't know what he was doing. But instead of pitching for the job, he started to sell the president a magazine subscription <laughs> to his magazine. <laughs> and he was Julie cast out his ass. That, I mean, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, you know, what? What? 
yeah, yeah. He, he's definitely a one and only kind of a character. So, what do you see yourself doing in the in, in the future aside from the Petty Gold Lewis thing? Where, where do you want to take the rest of your career? Well, if I don't write some single magnum opus, something that I, I, I have, I, if I could get all the parts, I'd get all the graphic novel and kind of realize a, a, it in a way that I, I kind of want to do it and I'm happy. If I don't do that, I think I'm going to die unhappy, literally. Yeah. Literally going to die unhappy if I don't do something like that. Just one, even. Just one. I didn't even have to fucking be successful, but just one the way I want to do it. Maybe even someone else's work, you know, just the way I want to present it. Um, I, I'd like to just do that, you know. If I could do that, I, 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 I'll never be right if I don't do it. I'll never be fully fucking happy artistically. But, but I think that's it, that's something that you can never never achieve you know like i think every artist will have the magnum opus is the next one the next one the next yeah. one yeah possibly yeah it's probably some elusive kind of a i i even reading stan lee um was quite unhappy because he was a he poet to be an actual yeah he was actually he was a poet you see he has books of his he has books of his poetry in his home that never 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 got outed and his wife was very upset because every time everyone talked to him they talked about Spider-Man and nobody ever knew about and in her words nobody ever knew about this beautiful poetry that's that Stan Lee wrote yeah is it just a human condition or left there's always some so even when we make, look, we look at people like Kurt Cobain and people that you would have thought hey, there they have it in the world at their feet and Apparently they didn't. So maybe it's some human drive. That even if you were one of those 5% successful artists, if you just scratched the surface there, they probably have an awful kind of, you know, kind of unresolved issues too. I think you know, it was awful to, to be the guy that had that one movie, had that one book. And, <laughs> The rest of stuff isn't great, but you just had that one book kind of like that the, must be awesome. Like then, the, even if you are like like the guy who um wrote the book the, the I think it's called the Eye of Argon. You ever heard okay. of it? It's meant to be it's like notoriously the worst wrote um fantasy book ever. And he was very young when he wrote it. He was like sixteen or something. And it's kind yeah. of almost like a serious take on do you remember the animated film Heavy Metal? Yeah. Do you remember the the episode with, or not episode, the parts of the film, I suppose, where there's like a 15-year-old boy who comes into the body of like this Conan-like figure? Oh, kind of, uh, yeah. It reminded me a little bit of that Jack Black thing going on here, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that, where basically this 16-year-old boy is enacting his fantasies on through this book yeah, like, and he could he yeah put, like that Jumanji and in the Eye of Argon it got slammed so hard that it became successful because it was the laughing stock of everything else and that guy he got ridiculed so badly that he vowed never to write again and he didn't and he died very young in his 40s or something like that. And it was really tragic. And I remember t- thinking, like, reading it and saying, like, 
I've read worse things than this. Like I really have. Like th- that guy did not deserve the ridicule that that yeah. he got. I think honestly, if you want to ridicule anyone, ridicule um, Ulysses by James Joyce because that's a crock of shit. Indeed, you know, he, he, he made River, uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai and different, oh, Brian's daughter he made. The same thing happened to him. He, he, he got, uh, criticised for something and he stopped making movies. Yeah. Uh, and he was a fucking, and he was a, he was like, an, obviously a maestro movie maker. He was, yeah. But he, 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 yeah, um, and sometimes you, the, the criticism can drive you. And I remember for years, I when I when I was sort of doing stuff, I had this monkey on my back. There was this has to be perfect. This has to be right. This has to be right. It was literally like that. And one day I decided, I'm not, I'm not creating like this anymore. This voice is going to have to go. Yeah. You know, I got rid of it. I got rid of that anyway. I had the awful. I've done that. I've done that myself. I actually done that recently. But there was one. Actually, you commented on it. Um, it was a painting that I wanted to do, and something didn't go right, and then another thing didn't go right, and another thing didn't go right, and I ended up being. I actually looking back on it now. It probably ended up being better than it ever would have been, but it's the one of the guy looking in the mirror. Okay, remember it. Yeah, and I got so frustrated with it, I just started painting the whole canvas, these red and yeah. c- colours, and just covered the whole thing in these different colours. And hmm. You obliterated it. I obliterated it, and then I posted it obliterated. And looking back on it now, it's not the best thing ever, but... It adds something to it. It adds that frustration that was in there, and you can see it very plainly. I'm not proud of it. I don't have it out displayed or anything. But not that Polish Bakinski, I think his name is. He does this sort of fantastically nightmarish. I I know. That's his technique. He works in oils, and he literally paints layer over layer over layer. Um. And that is his technique, and his stuff is fantastic. He, you know, there's, there's no, there's no. Um, I often think that too. There, there should be a fluidity if you're like this business. We, we see a lot on Instagram where the person, the performance of the art, where he executes the picture flawlessly. From that, that's fine and all, but that doesn't have to be. There's nothing that says it can't be this fluid stuff you rub out and go over and mess and. Why not? If that's your technique. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think everyone has their own kind of way of doing it. But in particular, that that one that drove me nuts, it just kind of ended up being not what I wanted. And then obviously what was ever going on in my own life at the time kind of came out on the canvas as well. And it it, it, it did add something to it that wouldn't have been there before, you know? Yeah, I know. It's a great great, uh, analogy, all right. Um. And you know, when you do go a bit mad, like you get to a point where you cannot view your own work object, you're looking at it and whatever way you're feeling isn't really the piece of your work you're looking at. That's that's just, like you could see that in two weeks' time and say, Geez, that was fine, what's wrong with me? That's 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 nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's it's a it's a retro it's this it's the same retrospective things 
that you would have with I don't know someone you've had an argument with or an ex girlfriend or something like that at the time it's this horrible horrible thing and you look back on it ten years later and you say like what was wrong with that really there was nothing wrong with it it's, it's fine you know look at it now you know yeah it's 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 isn't it all to do with sort of an awful lot of stuff I think in the human is is is, is to do with their emotional state. It's how you're feeling at any given time. We put we we give tremendous weight to you know reason and the intellect, but I think it's mainly how the fuck you're feeling. That's really what drives us and what what, what makes us take and you know I think that's that's the paramount thing. How you're actually and how you make other people feel. Yeah, absolutely. You know I mean, they don't remember what you said. They they remember how you made them feel. They don't remember exactly what you said. Mm. Do you remember how you made them feel? Yeah, and that's the that's the thing about how we communicate through art is um, yeah. our feelings gone into something and then it goes out there. And like, if you look at something that was really successful, like take The Dark Knight Returns, right? The kind of reinvention of Batman by Frank Miller, where the, yeah. the, the art... The, and people always say it's this gritty thing. It's not gritty at all because it's very operatic. You know, it builds and builds and then there's two gods fighting each other in the sky and there's a nuclear holocaust and it, it's very out there. But I think a lot of that comes from how the writer and artist was feeling at the time because he was very discouraged by living in New York City and he I think he got mugged by a, a couple of times. It just felt very powerless, you know, felt very powerless against this. And that kind of led into almost like a fascist kind of, uh, well, he did become quite fascist later on in life, but it, be, it became this fascist artwork, right? That we, as the audience, didn't realize that's the depths it was going to. But at the time, it gave us this feeling of a more human, uh, a more human character, a grittier character, a character that suffered. And, and that gave him this new uh, pathos to him that w- was quite enjoyable. Well, a lot of people kind of forget about that book is that the whole Batman persona was a different personality all along and nobody ever brought that up again. That it was this other personality, Fight Club style, that, that won over. Um, and oh, yeah. Yeah, it was always yeah. there. And there's this fantastic thing where his, he initially he puts on the suit and it's the, it's the blue cowl and cape and the, the, the yellow um, insignia over the bat symbol. And as the book goes on, chapter by chapter the suit gets darker and darker and darker until he's completely clad in black by the end, you know? And and, and it was yeah. just, it was, that was definitely how that guy was feeling at the time of everything was just against him. And, and that art form came out there and blew the world up in a big, bad way, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't help being, I kind of remember what Alan Moore said, that if, if you took a superhero and placed him in the real world, he looked like a lunatic. He'd be a psychopath. He'd be a, uh, you know, he'd be a, he wouldn't fit at all. There would be no due process. He'd be a kind of a, he'd be a dreadful, a dreadful sort of a, a, an aberration in, in, if, if you, if you were to get reality. Somebody sort of arbitrarily going around with this sort of two-dimensional view of humanity dispensing justice it's horrendous it is and it's like when you look 
Well, I think there was a, there was just a change in books then and the writers as well. A lot of them came from England with like a different mentality. But at the time, it was very cut and dry. We were used to Superman and Batman being friends and there was no politics behind it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I, 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 I think there's so much other... How do you think... How do you think it's all transferred to movies? I, I, I think it's been Badly. just detriment to movies. We're alive again. Um, okay. What, what I was saying uh, earlier, before, I got, before we all got cut off, was um, uh, I think the whole comic book thing has been detrimental to film because it's a strange one. You, like, think about how many Marvel movies are out there. You know, and then, you know, there's a lot of them. There's 20-something of them now. And same with the DC films. And you look, like, how many good ones actually came out? How many actually good films came out? You have The Joker, which is fantastic, amazing, right? But that's barely a comic book film, you know? And that, that's, a, that's, a whole, that's a whole podcast on its own. But, like, it's, yeah, they're making good fodder, but they're not making great artistic films, you know? No, you can't, and I think the whole shared universe part of it doesn't work because with comic books, you, you get an issue, and then there's you know, the Green Lantern turns up or whatever, and then th- that makes sense because they're within that universe. To establish the Green yeah. Lantern in a, a movie about Batman, there has to be another movie about the Green Lantern, you know? And then yeah. it has to get teased after the credits, and I think that's detrimental yeah. to the whole thing. Yeah. And you're, you're not invested. Just to introduce, you're not invested. Did, did, did you see that awful fucking latest Hellboy? Jesus Christ. Uh, the, did you see the latest yeah, I see. I actually chose something. I didn't hate it. Did you not? No, I, I, I didn't well, totally hate it. No, I found what they were doing with what you were describing there. They were introducing characters and maybe killing them quite quickly. And you had no investment. You didn't care because they had no backstory. You didn't know who they were, what they were. And then they would be killed tragically and you were supposed to care. And yeah, there was... There's... You know, like the Marvel movie that's... 400 of the superheroes just all in the background and just standing them playing and you're supposed to a person that even the world can see it a non-comic reader must be awful for them all together I found that probably the for someone who's never read the original Watchmen to watch the TV show a person must be totally freaking lost yeah because yeah. there was so much that tied into a book that came out 25 years ago no it's longer than that so yeah. over 30 years ago now um, and yeah. just you'd be totally lost watching that show and yeah. I was surprised enough that a couple of people didn't and they kept their attention to it but even I was kind of like you know at times I had to go back and think like oh wait no yeah this guy did this thing you, you know what I mean like there's a, there's a lot yeah. of unnecessary unnecessary like unnecessary kind of arcs and introductions and, and things like that well I kind of feel like if there's going to be a film universe it's all very busy, isn't it? It's all very busy. Yeah. You see, they've got fifty years. They've got fifty years of of uh, of of history of of storylines. Yeah. So 
Absolutely, and I think that's why the Joker was very successful because it didn't really take anything from anything. It it took it was entirely its own thing, and I feel like if they're going to do these movies, they need to be movies first and then comic books, comic book adaptation second. You know. Yeah, I, I think all of us had, had the experience of going to see a movie of a book we've read. And we say, oh my God. Because, I mean, if you take the process, the thought, if you're reading a book, you're going along with the thought process of, of the character and, and all these nuances that cannot be captured in movies. The, the character that you become intimate with in the book through all the thought process hmm. appears in uh, minute 22. They appear in a, in a, in a coming out of an elevator. And you see them for a few minutes, and that's all you see. And and you see them superfluously. You just see their their physical appearance, and that's all you see. And the whole thing just simply doesn't work. It doesn't, and I that hit me hard with the Punisher TV show, because I've been reading um, yeah. Garrett Dennis's run on the Punisher for probably the better part of my life, and. I feel it really feel this this I understood what was going on in this guy's brain box. Then you see it on screen and you're kinda like someone should have stopped him from saying that because that doesn't fit and you know, why is he referencing yeah. this thing that shouldn't have happened yet? You, you know, you, you kind of you end up being that critic that you don't want to be, you know, you just want to sit back and enjoy it. Yeah, and the funny thing is terribly kind of just as well in their own way. They did it in Breaking Bad. They had this process. That process in Breaking Bad that you saw the guy come from, you know, the transformation of Walter White, that process, that's, that's in countless comics. But it, it, when the, that transfers, that, that comic transfers to the movie, you get this awful stuff. That is sort of the process we're working about. Yeah. Um, and even they did, um, did you see the, the first True Detective? Yeah, that was, what a show yeah, that was. Something else, wasn't it? Oh, that was really good. Um, and I mean, so it can be done. Yeah, it can. It can be done. But, yeah. Oh, Jesus. I don't know what they don't. I maybe it's me being an old codger, but uh, I they seem to have actually lost the knack of making movies at this stage. I don't I feel no, it's there. It's just. There's no money where it is right now, you know what I mean? I think there is people coming up that are going to make some great movies. Because there's some great movies that came out even last year that you don't hear about. You don't even see them in the yeah. cinema. And, and it's only in these underground yeah. networks you kind of see these movies. Like one of the movies that I... One of my favourite freaking movies ever that didn't come out in the cinema here, it was in the kind of blacked out section of um, the Vision Store at the time. Where you're going into into the bad place, uh, where you weren't meant to be, and you didn't want to be seen in there. But it was um it was okay. a it was a Korean movie called Old Boy. And what a flick okay. that was! It's such an amazing amazing movie, and it never it never got talked about on ten fifteen years after it came out. Did you put a post up about that there a while ago? I could have. I I posted about a lot of things. Yeah, but it's a it, it was it's and that's the problem that it, it is there, it's just not being recognised the way that it should be, and we're putting too much onus 
on what Iron Man is doing this time, you know? And and it's like, okay. The Hulk approach is completely wrong. And you're, you're taught, I don't blame them now, but you're talking about, you know, businessmen. Yeah. Uh, looking for the next uh, kind of hit. Manufacture the next abundance hits. And it, it's, it, the whole approach is, is bound to, is bound to lead to a wasteland of ideas. It kind of has to. It's yeah. inevitable. It, it does you when know, it's a repetitive. become very very daft um i think the days of scorsese are and um other directors like him are long long gone but they're they're still there they're just there in a smaller more acute manner they're kind of tucked away in a little corner in different parts of the world you know and it makes the hunt for a good movie better i think personally yeah is it anything to do with our shortening attention spans as well? I think so. I think that has a lot got to do with it. And I feel those Marvel movies are definitely the culprits for short attention spans. Yeah. I, apparently, like, it, this has gone back hundreds of years. If you read Hamlet and things like that, those soliloquies that go on for, like, 40 minutes. Yeah. Can you, can you, what an audience that would put up with that now? I couldn't. I couldn't find an audience that would have put up with it then. To be honest with you, I, I, I find it. I suppose, but that was the medium at the time. You know, they were waiting for that to happen. That those were the big, they those those moments were the money makers. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'd say you know, we probably all we're all we're all. I think as a race, we're going through this problem problem of not being able to get into a kind of a flow because we've so many much input. There, there's going to be a there's like a point where everyone has to at least once a week turn off every screen in their house yeah. and yeah. only output information do not take in any any information and when you try and try and do that it's horrifying it's so horrifying I, I tried to do it for a few hours and I'll tell you but I did I, I was successful for a little while and it really paid off but I drifted back like like a junkie yeah I drifted back to all this stuff there's an interesting uh, social experiment where they put people in solitary and they took all their everything off them all their you know iPhones and everything in particular uh, she was a girl was about 19 or 20 she was alright after about three hours. She was crying and and that we're not putting it on. Yeah. And none of them were given three day challenge and only one person and this is interesting in our context. One of them made a challenge because 
they had a marker and a piece of whiteboard and start writing down their ideas and, and being creative and that got them through three days is a long time oh, you know yeah I wasn't I wasn't withdrawn from here in contact it was withdrawn from the phones yeah that's what was hitting them that, that's what they they're absolutely intolerable which also says so was the women's and their mothers are their girlfriends I was withdrawn from the, from social media that that, that was blowing their minds it's, um, it's, I'm starting to like a to the old man again, I think. Huh? I'm starting, uh, maybe, maybe that's a rant, is it? But uh, it's there, it's there, it's there on YouTube or something, if you want to see it. No, it's, it's, you know? it's a definite, it's definitely a point of, um, uh, it is a real thing that's happening. And it seems to have, like, overloaded overnight, you know, and it's something that we need to kind of... Yeah. For generations going forward, we need to kind of okay. We need to take a, a look at this. This this whole social media and internet interaction thing could be looked at the same way as we look at smoking, you know, as you tell your kids yeah. not not to do it. But it was fine once upon a time, yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely. But you look at it in the context of the plasticity of a, of, of a young mind, and you know, he's it's, got his, his, it's his dangerous. Game. YouTube and he's got something else. He's talking to his boy. Maybe got three devices going at once. Yeah, and it's and it's, to be, it's dangerous. To be, more than ten seconds to be to be to be alone and to be switched off for more than any length of time would be is intolerable. Yeah, that's so. Do you know what I think about there is actually Huxley. Um, I know Orwell is often cited as a sort of visionary, and maybe in the eighties and maybe in, in communist country, but. Huxley taught, he, he, he compared it in terms of a drug, or the Brave New World thing, you know, where, where people were given this drug, which, which he describes it fairly well. He put them into a state that they enjoyed being in, but they really shouldn't have enjoyed being in this state. This sort of state of being fed, uh, this kind of euphoric state of being fed input all the time. But he, he, did, he, he did it. In, far, in in terms of this drug they were given, mm. this pharmaceutical, but the exact sort of stuff he's describing is, is all really the, the, the uh, social media stuff. It, it is. Kind of, we can't go out, we can't. So it's, it's for, for the system, it's, it's, it, it serves the system in the sense that it gives us this occupation that keeps us kind of contained in that way you know and I don't think anyone's doing it on purpose it's the way it's sort of evolving that we're all sort of moving away from one another and into this dreadful dreadful sort of place without human contact it's a comfortable distance from people but to touch on the fact like a young mind with too much access to too much information at any time they want mm -hmm. in the palm of their hand mm -hmm. It's dangerous yeah. for kind of your reward centers of your brain, your curiosity oh, for knowledge, your problem solving. You know, it, it's dangerous for all that. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I, and I think what happens is the dopamine centers get eroded so that there's a sort of a flatness there that what gave you pleasure one time no longer does. And it, nothing gives you pleasure. It's like, the, it's like the 50th donut. You think the 50th donut is nicer than the first, but it's actually not. It's actually just sludge in your mouth at that stage. I yeah. think that's the kind of... Um, it's, 
been proven good. You can see it, you know, with ankle scans and things. You can see that. You can see these areas eroding in the brain, these pleasure centers. They're just not firing anymore because of this continuous input. I think that's a lot of reason why so many people are suffering from depression and anxiety more so than they did 20 years ago. 20 years ago, anxiety wasn't a word that we used, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and I think it's linked to all these awful deaths with, with, with young people, you know. And it is, it's it's horrible. But in the if we can start to mitigate it now when we have kind of, without getting too political, when we have a kind of a more mature governmental sector across the world. Um, yeah. I, I, I think we'll have a little bit more of knowledge upon it to guide the generations that come because I'm a, I'm a firm believer that people seem to think that the powers that be now will always be the powers that be. By the time that we're old and we're in the nursing home, right, there's going to be people that aren't born now who are going to be leading countries and be leading industries, who are going to have a whole new... They're going to see this and look back on it. and t- It's the same way we look back on Reagan and kind of go like, oh, that was a bit much now, aren't it? Do, do you know what I mean? We can look back. Yeah, you know, I mean, you and my police, I, I don't I have no idea what life is, but I'm not, not, I have no idea about anything. I've stopped with these uh, says, All I know is I don't know. So you can't actually... You can't take things off people. Who are you to say? You don't know. You just have to let it pan out, don't you? You do, and and I do have I have hope for a generation coming up that they're and they're very bright. I I know there's a lot we say about them. I, I, the fourteen year olds now are smarter than I I was when I was twenty five. You know, which is just last year. You know, so. And all this crap about millennials and how they they, they would not able to show up for that's all a lot of shit. They have challenges and fears to face that we that the older generation never did. Yeah. And they're smart. And you know what? They, 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 I think they see they see the destruction of the environment, and they, they're going to do something about that. Well, there's going to be a time when the boomers are gone. You know, when those guys, because they definitely have a different mentality. And when it's the millennials' turn to be the the, the top of the food chain, I think you, we will see yeah. a good change. You know. Absolutely, well, yeah. Oh. They, they want to live. They, they, according to the scientific consensus, if we don't change our ways in the next ten years, coronavirus is going to seem like a trip to fucking Disneyland. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Is there, I, I've been hearing that for like almost twenty-five years now. That oh, we've only another year left, and then we're fucked. You know, I, I, I don't. Hmm. It's not I don't believe it. I do think we're having an impact on the world, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of almost kind of question marks about everything that kind of goes around the media reporting of this. You know what I mean? Because every day it seems to be a new thing that's going to kill us. And in the last three years especially, there's this new thing every every day. That, and I know like there's one happening now, but there's always this this new thing. But I do think the environment is something that we need to be more wary of. But I don't think, I, I think like it, it doesn't matter whether we're here or not, the earth will change. It could wipe us out in a split second if it wanted to. I think it's, we put too much onus on ourselves that we can change it, that we're that important. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're so, 
egocentric aren't we as a species we, we are we, we, we really are if if the earth wants to end it can have one eruption that can just you know completely end the whole lot of us but I do think we need to be more mindful of the environment we need to like things like plastic bags why are we still using plastic bags why absolutely that just makes no it's sense so, to me. yeah I do know what you see do you see the sort of feats of engineering does it keep do you ever see the thing that holds your suit it's one of the, it's a, a long shaped thing. It's a fucking field of engineering, this thing. So you spend about, you eat yourself in about 60 seconds. Well, that thing is there for the next 400 years. Yeah, exactly. It's a now, Jesus. It's some sort of a biodegradable hemp or something. I don't know. I know it's easy to say. It's, but, um, but it's a lot more uh, of a, it's a lot more possible than what you think the amount of stuff you can make for hemp from hemp the uh, you, yeah. uh, everyday utensils like you could replace plastic with hemp make a new yeah. industry and everyone would, would have jobs to be cleaner from the environment and everyone would be a lot happier as well and like it just mm. again but I, I feel like it's the fact that the people at the top of the food chain right now aren't they're not looking at the long term you know Maybe our face has to hit the canvas, but the problem is that, like, does it has to happen in order for us to start to do something about it? But the problem is, if it happens, it may be too late. I think that's the nightmare. It it is definitely the kind of the nightmare scenario, but it's mm-hmm. do you know, and it's not worth worrying about, you know. Because whether we can, we all do our bit, and if we all do our bit, great, it doesn't happen. But if it happens, it happens, and it's always going to happen that whether we were there or we weren't there, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's I, I think personally, I need to distance myself. I find sometimes it does affect my, affect my mental health. It does, and, and um, that's it, it becomes an anxiety with people when it comes to these apocalyptic mm-hmm. scenarios that we end up constantly hearing about and it can put you in a bad place you know it can put you in a bad place yeah well personally it wouldn't really be an anxiety it would be a sense that all the good things in life are gone that would be as 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 with me as well all the good things in life would be gone that would be the way that I would see it but at the same time I think we're very good to ourselves in a way that we think we know how this is all going to pan out you know yeah, and that uh, we can stop it. It's just yeah, ridiculous. Who can sideline us? Can can blindside us too? Like like this virus thing, and then you get consequences from that, and you know, and yeah. So so that kind of strange meandering of fate might save us. That's, things happen. Things, things happen that seem counterproductive, but why do they why do they work out? Um, it's like I always say, Hitler sort of farmed Israel in the sense that he, create, he created the Jews so atrociously that they had, they had such sympathy after the end of the war that this created an environment that they were able to establish their own country. It, so it, I it feel ended like... up achieving the very opposite of what he was trying to Yeah. And I find I find that all because of the beat the sun gets, he becomes he's able to mount obstacles that he wouldn't have done. 
I, fi- I find that um, no matter what evil is in this world or whatever we perceive as, you know, evils, it always has a way of balancing itself back out. It's just you, we never hear about how it balances itself back out. Communism started off as like the pipe dream of a utopia, and look how that yeah. turned out, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, and you could have a totalitarian regime that ends up okay. Yeah. It does, and we're all. Um, somebody once said, and this I think this is a great note to, to to end on. If you take nothing from this podcast, take this little bit of advice. There's no such thing as secret societies. There's no Illuminati. There's no anything because we're all children here in this this earth, and we just never happen to realize it until it's too late. That in actual fact, we're children here to experience everything we can possibly experience. That this is the gateway to the next thing, and the next thing we will not be children. We're only put here to grow, and that's the most important thing. The most important thing to remember is you're only here to grow. You're not here to do anything else. Yeah. And what yeah. and what a note to end the first episode of of yeah, Arts and Minds on. Yeah. Yeah. We we took the apocalypse in our hand there and we made it good. That's what art does, people. <laughs> Just don't look outside your window right now. <laughs> There it is. That was our episode with Eamon Cowan where we touched base on a lot of stuff. Over an hour's worth of good audio listening for your ears. Um, yeah, thanks so much for uh, listening the whole way to the end. And I'm going to get to work on the second episode in a couple of hours, which hopefully will drop during the week. And again, like and share it around Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. And I also really appreciate that. And I appreciate the 16 or 17 listeners that we had for the last episode, which I really appreciate because... That was really duct tape and bailing wire and I only salvaged a small amount of it. Thankfully enough, this time I salvaged a lot more. I apologise for the quality of the phone coming through and the audio, but, you know, what can you do? And hopefully sooner, sooner rather than later, we'll I'll actually be talking to the man in person again because there's definitely stuff we still need to talk about. And again, stay safe out there. Keep creating. Don't let anyone tell you that you shouldn't stay in isolation. Perfect time to start your book. Take... If there's anything you should take from this, it's a small bit of advice I got from someone once, and it's rang true. You can start anything in two minutes. There's a two-minute rule, right? If you wake up tomorrow morning and there's something on your head, whether it's the gym, maybe don't go to a gym today, but maybe you know do a home uh, gym lesson. If it's the gym, it's yoga, it's a book, it's drawing, it's a painting, whatever. Give yourself two minutes, right? 
you can start anything in two minutes you might not be able to finish it in two minutes if you can finish something in two minutes fair play to you but you won't be able to finish but you can start it right so if you just tell yourself sit in front of that computer and start typing or sit in front of that canvas and start painting for two minutes and just say I'm going to do this for two minutes that's 60 seconds twice and if you do that you'll either keep going or you'll get to the two minutes and you'll stop at the end and that's okay but every day give yourself two minutes to start something and you'll be very surprised what will actually happen by the end of a week because that two minutes could turn into six hours you just don't know so always keep the faith in that that everyone is out there to create art and we're all in this together and keep on listening and i'll see you guys in the next episode